between 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. <coughs> Excuse me. A lot of those have dealt with David. Um, if you get into 1st and 2nd Kings, uh, we find some other kings that are dealt with there as well. But, and David is mentioned quite a bit through that. First uh, and Second Chronicles are no different, uh, especially in First Chronicles. We see uh, a rather intensive view uh, of David's ministry, uh, as has been the case in the other books that we have looked at, First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. First uh, and Second Chronicles were also written uh, originally as a single book. Uh, they were uh, divided later in time. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the uh, the book uh, was often referred to uh, as the words of David uh, or the things omitted. Those were two two titles by which it was called, and uh, referencing the things that were not listed in First and Second Kings. So it, it fills in some gaps and, and adds some information to the narrative of David's uh, reign and the history of Israel. You'll find that there is a very, very strong emphasis on, because uh, <coughs> if you remember, there's a divided kingdom here. Um, you have Israel to the north and ten tribes. You have Judah to the south and two tribes. And uh, you'll find that there is a very strong emphasis on Judah specifically in uh, the books of Chronicles, um, mainly because it, it gives the lineage, if you will, of David's line uh, leading up to and prefacing the lineage that will continue in, in Matthew uh, when we see the line going to the Messiah and uh, to Christ. And so it's very, very important that we understand these things. It was given the name Chronicles, believe it or not, by Jerome uh, when he did his work and created the Latin Vulgate. Uh, was the first time that the word Chronicles or the name Chronicles was used for these books. Um, the, um, the previous books have primarily dealt with uh, the political history of Israel, the kings, and, and all that transpired. Uh, when we get to First and Second Chronicles, you'll see a shift in the way it's approached, and that is they're not so much looking at the political aspect of the history of Israel, but they're dealing now with more of the religious history. Uh, there's a strong emphasis on the temple, the temple worship, um, the priestly line, uh, and so because of that, even though we don't know 100% sure uh, who the author of the uh, of Chronicles is or who the, the person is that compiled most of this, there is very, very strong evidence to indicate that probably Ezra did. Um, if not Ezra, it certainly would have been someone that would have been a contemporary of his or probably very close to him uh, because the style of the writing of First and Second Chronicles is very, very, very similar to the style of writing in the book of Ezra. Uh, and so uh, more than likely uh, was written uh, or penned by uh, Ezra. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The book is addressed to the remnant. So if you can kind of understand the history of Israel at this point, um, you had uh, Saul was the first king, David was the second king, then you have Solomon. And then you have the divided kingdom, and you have uh, the, the, we call them the Boam boys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Rehoboam becomes the king of the ten tribes to the north in Israel, and uh, Jeroboam to the uh, south in, in Judah. 
And uh, so we find uh, the Sikh tribes are there for a number of years, about 150 or so years. And uh, God brings judgment. And brings judgment to Israel first and the Assyrians subsequently and later on to Judah under under the Babylonian captivity. And it's eventually the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians and so they all become under the curse after the Babylonian captivity. They're there for a good portion of time. And you'll remember from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah kind of is the beginning of the return uh, of the Jews back to Jerusalem uh, from the Babylonian captivity. You'll have um, Nehemiah, Ezra, Malachi, uh, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these fellows are contemporaries of that time period and are writing regarding that. So the book of uh, First and Second Chronicles is addressed to, it's written to uh, the remnant, those Jews that are coming back to Jerusalem and, and or are already established there. And uh, very important because as we get to some of the key verses and key things in this book, it's uh, very interesting to see what God says there uh, to the remnant. And uh, so uh, we'll take a look at that as we get in a little bit further. Ezra was a, uh, a very educated scribe, and uh, I think some of the uh, reasons why we think that he perhaps was the author is that he had, uh, if you'll remember, uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. So within the king's palace, he had access to uh, a lot of uh, uh, records uh, in the palace there. Uh, they kept all kinds of records and, and books and uh, things like that. And they had a vast library. And so Ezra would have had access to those things and, again, would have been able to pull very heavily from some of the things that Nehemiah had access to. There are numerous indications through the book of First and Second Chronicles that were some of the sources that uh, the person that did compile this uh, was able to use to compile the information for us. The book of the first book of Chronicles, Chronicles is divided basically into two portions. Um, in chapters 1 through 9, we find the genealogies uh, all the way from Adam until the time of David. Um, and uh, so the first portion of the book of First Chronicles is a lot of, and so-and-so was that, he lived so many years, and then he did that, and uh, they, they have these huge names that half of them you can't pronounce, but uh, they're there by way of record uh, so that we can have an establishment of historical genealogies when we line up the Messiah, but also to give us an idea of the time frames that took place, and it allows us to have a biblical view uh, of about when creation took place. And uh, it's interesting to me how many times Christians have said, because of the, the strength in teaching in our public institutions on the subject of evolution, it's amazing how many Christian people uh, speak of the earth being millions of years old or, or tens of thousands of years old um, or even billions of years old. But the truth is, if we're a Christian, if we don't understand Genesis and we don't understand the creation story and we don't take it for what it says, and trust that it is the true account of how this world came into existence, then how can we trust anything else in Scripture? Uh, How can we trust that that science is the Son of God? How can we trust the fact that any of these folks did uh, uh, write these prophecies and they came true? 
And so this book is a divine book. We know it by, uh, by faith first and foremost because the Holy Spirit does uh, bear witness in our hearts that this is truth. We know it to be true. Uh, if you're saved and you trust in Christ as your Savior, that's an issue that ought not ever to be unsettled in our hearts because it's something that the Holy Spirit confirms inside of us and we get to understand it and know it to be true. It bears a powerful witness in our hearts. It's a book that is a supernatural book. And, um, but there are plenty of anecdotal evidences of this book. There's not one, not one out of the, the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that are stated here, sometimes written thousands of years prior to the event. Uh, there's not one of them that has not come true exactly the way that it has been prophesied. Uh, not one. The chances of that are, are so unbelievably uh, impossible that it has to be a divine book. There are internal evidences. There are external evidences. And uh, so it's very important that we understand uh, the, the book of First Chronicles takes us back to the beginning of time when Adam and Eve were, were in the Garden of Eden and brings us all the way up through the time of David. And it gives us kind of a time frame there to let us know how many years have transpired. I'll give you a hint. It's not millions and millions of them. <laughs> but, uh, and it's certainly not that. Uh, so we need to understand that and be, be firmly resolved in the fact that we believe the biblical account of creation. And, uh, and so this book begins with Adam and brings us up through the time of David. Uh, they take nine chapters to do that. Then the rest of the chapters, chapters 10 through 29, focus on 32 years. So they take nine chapters to go through uh, a couple thousand years, a few thousand years. And then they take the last half of this book, and it only deals with 33 years. And uh, the 33 years of David's reign, both in Judah and over the, over the both kingdoms together after he was coronated. Um, the uh, genealogies that we find here uh, extend over about uh, 500 years. <coughs> More than likely, it was written around four, uh, between 450 and 430 B.C., uh, this is the time period where Ezra would have led some exiles back to um, back to Jerusalem, and he is the spiritual leader during that time. Uh, if you remember um, in the book of Nehemiah, the first half of the book, and we just finished studying it just a few months ago, the first half of the book is all about Nehemiah coming and rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the gates and and at least the uh, foundation of the temple. And then this latter half of the book uh, deals with the revival that takes place in the nation of Israel when Ezra gets up and he reads the book of the law of God and the people repent and uh, that we see great revival in, in Israel during that time. So uh, Israel or uh, Ezra is uh, the spiritual leader of the people of Israel during this time. Nehemiah is the political leader uh, during this time. And believe it or not, Malachi is a very, very strong leader also during this time. We don't typically think of Malachi uh, being a very strong leader during this time, but he is the moral uh, leader of this time. And when we get to Malachi, we'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, the part that he plays during all of that. <clears throat> the book emphasizes mainly the temple and the priesthood uh, as part of the, and I'm going to use a big word here, the theocratic reign of David. Uh, a theocracy is ruled by God. And even though there's a king in place, David very much is a man after God's own heart. And so he rules Israel as he 
believes God would direct him. And of course, like many of the earthly kings, the first part of his reign uh, was marked by this. And uh, it was the latter part of his reign that oftentimes uh, would flounder. And we find that in Saul. We find that pattern in David. We find that pattern in Solomon. And I believe there's a lesson to be learned there. And uh, one of my, my dad's, well, not one of them, but my dad's favorite verse of Scripture uh, is in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, And it says, uh, Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And uh, the danger that there is, seems to be oftentimes in our life that when we start the race well, we don't always finish it well. And what an encouragement, what a help it is to younger Christians and for the generation after us to see Christians that are steadfast in their life and they finish as well as they began. And I want to encourage us in this because the temptation, the, the apathy perhaps we've, we've battled, we're, we're, weary, we're war weary, uh, weary worn uh, in the spiritual battle of life. And oftentimes, as we get in, uh, up in years, uh, not so much even physically as much as spiritually, there is a tendency that we have to drift. The temptation is there. The pressure is there. And we're tired of fighting it sometimes. And um, it's funny because in my, my own family, I've seen this over the years. And my mom and I, we, we, we cut up about this, and I give her a hard time about it sometimes, but my dad had my sister, my older sister and I, uh, two years apart, and um, we grew up, and mom and dad, I mean, they were, some of y'all talk about getting whoopings and, and, you know, working hard and that kind of stuff, I mean, just nose to the grindstone up at 5.30 before daybreak and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and we didn't even live on a farm. We were in the city, and we still had to do that stuff, and um, then there's nine years difference between my brother, my younger brother, and myself. And so they had two more kids. They had my younger brother, and then two years later had my younger sister. And the way that my younger brother and sister were raised is a lot different than the way my older sister and I were raised. A lot different. And my mom and I, we talk about that quite often. If my dad was still alive, we would talk about it too. And I give her a hard time about it. I don't, and I, 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 I kind of gripe and complain to her jokingly. I love the way I was raised. I don't regret that at all. But I like to give her a hard time about how they were so easy on my younger brother and sister. And uh, she's made the comment to me before that she said, well, we just kind of, we kind of just got you know, matured and we were probably getting up in years. We were tired and we just didn't want to have to go through the struggle that it took to do it the way we did it with you and Leanne. And uh, oftentimes as we go through life, we get tired of the struggle. We get tired of the battle. And if we're not careful, uh, we'll begin to drift. And so we find that so significant. Now, Samuel, uh, in his account of David, talks about a lot of the flaws of David. He deals with um, David's sin with Bathsheba. He talks about uh, his, his multiple wives. He talks about all the things that went on in, during, in the flaws that David had, his uh, committing a, a, a murder with Uriah the Hittite and You'll find that uh, when we get to First and Second Chronicles, uh, even in, especially in this book, when it deals with the reign of David, you don't find a lot of negative things about David. And instead of seeing the, the chastening of God on David for the things he does wrong, what it does tend to emphasize is the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful picture in this book. 
Uh, because we see both sides of it. In First and Second Samuel, we see God's justice. And uh, in First Chronicles, we see God's love and His mercy. And God is both, by the way. Amen? He is just. He cannot let sin uh, continue. But I'm thankful He's also merciful. And I'm thankful that He's also all loving. Uh, loving and uh, that He gives us an opportunity to have forgiveness of sin. And so you'll find this book specifically really kind of focuses on that forgiving uh, side of God. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. We're going to look at some uh, verses of Scripture here in just a few minutes. <clears throat> um, the Christ of Chronicles. How is Christ pictured in, uh, in this book? Uh, once again, David is a figure of Christ. We're not going to go back through that because we've already dealt with how David is a picture of Christ. Understand this, and I've said this two or three times now, but I want to make sure we're clear on this when we study Old Testament. Um, there are pictures of Christ that are given in the Old Testament. But understand that because these are human people, they are not in every point exactly like Christ because they're imperfect. But there are attributes about them and there are characteristics about them and sometimes circumstances of their life that literally point us to the coming Christ. And, but we've got to be careful that we don't equate David with Christ uh, because he is not. He is a sinful man just like you and I are. But the fact that his reign and the way that God uh, blessed and worked in his life, uh, some of the things about David's life, point us to Christ and help us to see some things. So we find David is a picture of Christ. Again here, the, uh, the covenant that God made with David back in, and it's recorded in 2 Samuel, uh, the one that he recorded, or the one that he made with David um, is reiterated or another account of it is given uh, in 1 Chronicles. Um, the covenant that God made with David is is indicative of Christ as well, because the covenant was that David's kingdom would be an eternal kingdom. It would be an everlasting kingdom. No, in other words, there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. And you say, well, they don't have a king right now. Who's the king? Well, Christ is. He's in heaven, but he's still on the throne. And he is a descendant of David. And in the millennial reign, we'll, content, we'll come back and again take uh, physically that throne here uh, on earth. And so it's going to be an interesting uh, study as we get to some of those things in the book of Revelation even. Um, but the fact that the covenant that Christ gives to David is recorded again, gives us another uh, a picture of Christ, the coming Messiah, uh, in this particular book. It's amazing how many Old Testament books point to Christ. By the way, Christ is the, always the central theme of Scripture. He's the theme, theme the, the redemption of man is the central theme of all of Scripture. Uh, you say, well, it, what about the genealogies? They still point to Christ. Uh, the genealogies are given to show uh, that God has not only chosen, but has protected and preserved a people for himself from the time of Adam through the time of David. And then, then we see when we pick up in Matthew with the genealogies, we find from the time of David and further on, uh, we find also that he has continued to protect that line for the coming Messiah. Everything in the Bible points to the Savior of mankind. And uh, make, make sure we understand that idea. Uh, Judah, uh, even though they are the smaller of the two tribes, <clears throat> is also uh, something that kind of helps us to see Christ. Um, it's the first uh, one and the one that's given the most emphasis 
mentioned in First Chronicles, uh, even though it's the smaller of the two of the divided kingdom. And uh, because the temple and the Messiah come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter number 49. Genesis chapter number 49. <clears throat> and let's go to verse number 10. Genesis chapter number 49 and verse number 10. Uh, let's back up to verse number 9 so we can kind of get a running start into it. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, and thou art gone, uh, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as an old lion who shall rouse him up, the scepter, notice this, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And so again, the, the line of the Messiah promised all the way back in Genesis. Isn't that amazing that we find when God promises something, even if it was written hundreds of years before the fulfillment of that or before the reiteration of that, we find that God always keeps His Word. And it, it, the interesting thing to me is all these different writers, they didn't know each other over about a 1,500, 1,700-year period. They're all writing as the Holy Spirit inspires them to write. And everything they write is in agreement with every other thing that's written. And so, again, one of the wonderful ways that we know this book is not just a book. It's the book. It's the Word of God. It's exactly what God intended for it to be. Every single word of it. And very important. You say, is it important uh, about the, the version that we use, the translation that we use? Absolutely it is. Because as they change these words and they change these phrases and they cut out portions of it, they change some of these things that are so vital to the interconnection of the truth of the coming Messiah. And it changes the doctrine of salvation. And so it is very, very crucial. It's very important that we have in our hands a Bible that we can hold to and say, we don't think that it's a good translation of the Word of God. We believe it to be the preserved without error, inspired Word of God. And the only way that we can preach or teach authoritatively, or even as a, a Christian that's just studying Scripture, the only way we can study it with full confidence is to know that this doesn't just contain the truth of the Word of God, but it has all of the truth of the Word of God that He intends for us to have. And then it helps us to say, that's what it says, so that's what I'll do. Because it's exactly what God has for us to do. Very, very important that we understand that. Um, let's look at a couple of the key things here. <clears throat> uh, let's go to chapter number 17 of First Chronicles. And we're going to look at two passages that I think are key to this particular book. Um, that, are, that are very encouraging. I, I like this one's good, but the next one we get to, I think, is, is one that I love even more. Uh, but let's look in First Chronicles chapter number 17, and uh, let's go down to verse number 11. First Chronicles chapter 17 and verse number 11. And it shall come to pass, when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, and I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, 
and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is God giving David the covenant uh, when, he, when he made this covenant with David. It's just another account of it uh, given here in First Chronicles. Notice verse number 12. So he speaks of the son that's going to be raised up after David and establishing his kingdom. And of that son, he says in verse 12, He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not, notice this, take my mercy away from him. Boy, what a promise. <laughs> what a promise. We know who the son is that built the temple. That was Solomon. The first part of Solomon's reign in his life, Israel reached its pinnacle. I mean, it was at its most magnificence, its most power, its most splendor. God's blessing was upon it. But as Solomon allowed idolatry to come into his own family and household and then somewhat of the nation, as he got older, God's mercy was still there. Aren't you glad for God's mercy? I think this is a wonderful illustration of the security of the believer. The fact that when we get saved and we sin, God shows mercy. And get this, not because of us, but because of Him. Because of the price that Christ paid for us. God is making David a promise here. That my mercy will not depart from your son. And what he was telling David is, I won't be doing it for his sake. I'll be doing it for yours. Isn't it wonderful that when we get saved and we trust Christ as our Savior, that our salvation and the security of it is not dependent upon whether we are faithful or whether we sin. But it is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the surety, He is the guarantor of our salvation. He's the one that purchased it. He's the one that applied it to our lives. Once we put our faith in Him, He applies that blood, that forgiveness, that payment for our sin. He applies that to us. And when God, as a just God, looks at us, He does not see our sin. He sees the righteousness of His own Son. What a wonderful testimony. And God makes this promise to David, I think, a beautiful picture of salvation here. As he says, my mercy shall not depart from him. Notice what he says here, or I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. Again, a wonderful picture. And, and even though Christ is not mentioned by name here, it certainly is pointing to Him. It certainly is saying there's going to be somebody on this throne forever. It's not going to depart from your family. And sure enough, we find both in Matthew and in the book of Luke that Christ came from the line of David. And oh, what a wonderful joy to see those things in Scripture. I don't know about you all, but I get encouraged. I get excited when I see some of that. And uh, just, to, just to think about uh, how perfect, how perfect, how flawless God's plan of redemption is. Let's look uh, also, this, that's one of the key verses, I think, in, in 1 Chronicles, and a great lesson to be learned. Uh, let's look now in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. <clears throat> 1 Chronicles chapter number 29. 
David is getting to the end of his reign, the end of his life. And I, I want you to see what he writes here. And this is, if you read the Psalms very much at all, especially the ones that we know are written by David, uh, this is not out of character for him. But I love these things. Let's look in verse number 11. Let's back, we'll back up verse number 10 so we understand what's going on here. Wherefore, David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, and I want you to notice what he says here. Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. We talked a little bit about this Wednesday night, about the fact that how do we give a blessing to God? <laughs> that, 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 we have nothing that God needs. Nothing that He desires. Um, the word blessing here means to extol. That's a, that's a big word. I looked this word up, this blessing, uh, or blessed in uh, Webster's 1828, and it speaks of the fact to praise or to extol. And so I, didn't know what, I, I, I know what extol means, the general gist of it means, but I never looked up what it, what it uh, was defined as. And one of the major parts of the definition of extolling means to magnify. Him. And we made the mention Wednesday night in our study in Revelation. We made the mention of this. Uh, what does it mean to magnify? And I shared with the fact, uh, and y'all got, some, a couple of people in our church, I think missed our whole point. No, they didn't miss the point. But I have a hard time seeing up close anymore. I'm older and I need bifocals. I don't have them. And, but I have a pair of reading glasses, and they're, they're magnifying. There's so many power, I think 2.5 or 3, 3X or something like that. And so I take these off and put those others on, and it magnifies the play, page. And when it magnifies the page, it makes it clearer for me to see. Our purpose in life is to help people who cannot see, who are blind, to see Him more clearly. And I think that's what David is getting at here. Blessed. Blessed be Thou, Lord God of Israel. Forever and ever. Notice what he says. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Well, what a great truth. David, in giving his praise to God, makes the statement that we are to be, or he says, blessed be the Lord God, and that's part of his praise. And he speaks about the fact that thine, O Lord, is the greatness. And what he's saying by that is, any greatness that there is, whether it be in this world or in me or in this kingdom, is really your greatness being shown through us. Notice what else he goes on to say here. And the power, any might, any power that I have, it's yours, Lord. It's not something that came from me. It's not something that is my, uh, my, my doing. It's all because of what you have done. And the glory, any glory that we have belongs to him. How in the world should we ever glory? We're just sinners, saved by the grace of God. And there's, there is glory. Sometimes people look and say, boy, that's, that, uh, what a blessing that person is. 
Can I tell you, that glory is not ours to, to take. We would not have that were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His. It's His work in us. And the victory, any victories that we have, it's His. And any majesty that's given, it's His. All of it is His. And when, he, when we praise God, it ought not ever be man-centric. It ought not to be man-centered. But it ought to always be saying, Lord, everything, everything that I give you belongs to you. My praise belongs to you. If there is any glory that is to be had in this life, it's yours. If there is any strength or any might or any victory I have in my life, the credit belongs to you. Because the truth is, we're weak. And we are not able to do these things in and of ourselves. And so much so that when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, He made the statement, without Me, you can do nothing. All that we are is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come here at Keith Heights Baptist Church. We're members of this place. I think God's got a great group of folks here. But the truth is, this whole body of believers that's gathered here today, any, any merit that there is, is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a hospitable church down there. They, they're very kind. They're very welcoming. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this wonderful phrase. Uh, chapter 17, and we've got to get through these notes uh, here, and if I, uh, I don't want to rush through them, but uh, chapter 17 is the key chapter. This is where we find God making the covenant with David. Uh, so very, very important. This, uh, this book is written, I believe, in, in a large part as an encouragement to the remnant to, because of God's mercy and His forgiveness being emphasized, the challenge of being uh, spiritually right and establishing proper worship to God again, it's, it's meant to be, it's intended to be an encouragement for a remnant who's just now coming out of, out of the bondage of, is, uh, of uh, the Babylonian captivity. Um, let me go through a few of these. I can leave a few of this out. Um, let's look in chapter 28, just across the page, in verse number 3. David has such a desire to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple for God. And I want you to notice as we get to verse number 3, God's, and you can read the, the rest of the chapter and know that I'm not taking this out of context. But God, God indicates to David in verse number 3, He says, But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build a house. For my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. And David had such a desire to do something for God. And God said, uh, you can't do that. I don't want, well, he didn't say you can't. He said, I don't want you to do that. And sometimes God puts the brakes on some things in our lives. You ever notice that? And I'll be real frank with you. There's been a, a time or two that I think God's done that in my life, or maybe more than once or twice, and the tendency is to kind of get in our pouty corner and pout about it. It didn't happen, and boy, that's what my heart wants. But that's not what David does. And I want us to learn this lesson today. So, so David is not allowed to build the temple. But you know what he does instead? He doesn't just say, okay, Lord, I, I, I'll just sit around and do nothing until till my reign is over. He stays busy for God. He still continues to do some things. Notice this. He, he designs and he plans the entire temple. By the time Solomon gets on the scene... 
David already had everything set. He already had it planned. David gathers all of the materials it's going to take to build that um, that temple. He prepares the site where it's going to be. He has it all ready for, to go. When Solomon gets on the scene, all he's got to do is, is pull the trigger on it and it happens. And then he arranges, David arranges, he sets up and, and puts in place the Levites, the priests, the choirs that are going to serve in the temple, the porters that are going to keep and serve in the temple, uh, the soldiers and the stewards. He sets all of this up, has it all ready to go when Solomon comes. And I think a wonderful thing to learn here is if God closes a door, don't just sit there and do nothing. Do something. Do something for the Lord. And uh, I, I, I used to use this phrase quite a bit and still do sometimes. Bloom where you're planted. It may not be where you want to be, but it's where God has you. And bloom where you're planted. Do something there. And do something for the Lord. I think there's two things, lessons, main lessons, overlying lessons over the book that I want to share with you. The book, first of all, shows God at work in selecting, preserving a people for Himself from the beginning of human history until the point of the Babylonian captivity. It's kind of a preface to uh, the genealogies that are found in Matthew. And Matthew kind of picks up there and moves on to the time of Christ. And so the book is kind of uh, dealing with that. I think the main lesson to be learned here, and something is so easily seen in this book as you read through its pages, and something to keep in mind as we study it, it vividly demonstrates God keeping His covenant promises. We cannot keep covenant with God. We're fallible, sinful men. And we cannot keep covenant with God. But I am thankful that God keeps covenant. That when God makes a covenant, His side of it is always going to be kept. I don't have time to develop that this morning in Sunday school, but if you take some time to read Hebrews chapter 6-9 through and see the new covenant that was made at Calvary, and while we cannot keep covenant, God has even made a way for our side of the covenant to not be broken. And that is by letting Christ be the surety, the, the guarantor, if you will, the, the co-signer of our side of the covenant. So that when I fault my side of the covenant, Christ steps in and says, the penalty for that, I've already paid for it. The covenant is still intact. What a wonderful thing. And I hope that will be a help to us this morning. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, as we've studied, just not line by line and verse by verse, but even just to understand how these books are structured and, and the truths that are found in the pages are such a blessing to us. I pray that you would help to guide and direct our steps. May we learn from these things. And most importantly, may we take heed to them. Dismiss us.